Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 58. As you heard last episode, Swapo insurgents were about to head south from various points north of Atoshapan, aiming at the farming area in the Triangle of Death. As Napoleon Bonaparte said, you must not fight too often with one enemy, or you will teach him all your art of war. By now, Swapo and the SADF had fought each other since 1966, and both sides had learned from each other. Because of this, April of 1982 would turn into a bloodbath in the Triangle of Death. The impetus started far away, in Lubango, inside Angola. That's the town with a statue of Christ that replicates the famous Rio statue, just a little smaller. It rises 30 meters into the air, arms wide, welcoming visitors. It was under the shadow of this statue, more than 700 kilometers from Tsumeb and the Triangle of Death, that plans were afoot. 12 kilometers outside Lubango is a town called Humpata, and further south of this lay the Swapa base called Volcano. Just a little background, Humpata is where the Dorsland trekkers of 1881 had arrived after they had left the Transvaal in 1873, searching for a new Boer-promised land, tired of being chased through Africa by the British. Humpata and Lubango lie in the humid subtropical parts of Angola, north of the desert lands. The Trek Boers had headed to this area, as you heard in one of my earlier podcasts, because the Portuguese colonial authorities at the time had invited them. By 1885, most of these trekkers would be leaving the area for a number of reasons. One was the climate. The other was that the colonial authorities wanted their children to be taught in Portuguese and not Dutch, and they'd just left a region where the English were trying to enforce language rules already. So some of these Angolan trekkers headed south to a small settlement they named Uppingtonia, etched out of land given to them by Kambondi Kaimpingana, king of the Ondongos of Ovambaland. This area was south of Ovambaland proper, with Otavi in the west, Grootfontein in the east. It also included the copper-rich area of the Otavi Mountains, where Tsumeb would later be located. There was a great deal of trekking going on between this area and the area in Angola around Lubango, and many of the old trekker graves can be found in the area around Humpata, Lubango, and the old Uppingtonia. By the early 1980s, Swapo had set up a major training base 30 kilometers south of Lubango and named it Volcano. It was here in 1982 that a specialized unit was being trained, and that unit was called Typhoon. Like the trekkers, they'd be heading south soon, and the name Typhoon was apt, as you're going to hear. Swapo's aim was to infiltrate south of Avambaland and to attack farms around Sumeb and Otavi and Hurtfontein, the Triangle. Leading this group was a man who'd been fighting against the SADF constantly since the late 1970s. His name was Ruben Danger Ashipala. He was apparently a flamboyant character, and those who fought against him called him tactically brilliant. Of all the commanders facing the SADF over the years, Russian, Cuban, Angolan, East European, he was probably one of the most accomplished at the art of war. His motivation was not simple hatred. His decision to kill civilians, black and white, was based on a military strategy. Destroy the farmers' morale and you'll weaken the SADF by reducing the effectiveness of their local support. He was planning a rather long march from the volcano base all the way to Tsumeb farming area. That was more than 700 kilometers away. Part would be accomplished by vehicle, but more than half the distance was going to be on foot. Danger Ashapala was highly aware of the effect of negative propaganda, and his obsession was going to cost many lives. Every single civilian who was blown up by landmines or shot or intimidated came with an unequal number of Swapo dead. 
But the officers were trading these lives against increasing paranoia inside the farming area in the Triangle of Death. It was a political equation, one in which his own fighters' lives were traded in exchange for an increase in white farmer paranoia. By now, Swapo had killed hundreds of civilians, both black and white, but over the years, thousands of Swapo and plant fighters had died in that awful exchange. And yet these actions seemed to be working, at least when it came to fear. No one in this triangle could travel on the roads normally. They had to use mine-protected vehicles or travel in convoys. They could be ambushed at every turn. Their children could die. That's no way to live year after year, however stiff your upper lip is. It's the old story. Civilians caught between two heavily armed and motivated forces suffer the most. They have literally nowhere to turn. They're doomed if they support the status quo, and they're doomed if they don't. Many of the civilians inside the Triangle were actively trained as soldiers to fight against Swapo, so they weren't seen as non-combatants. They were part-time reservists, they were armed, and Swapo believed because of this they were valid military targets. Ashipala understood this probably better than most of his enemy, the SADF leadership in Pretoria, who were trying to reduce Swapo's effectiveness in the short term. Ashipala also knew something else, and he was implacably glued to this view. Eventually, he said the SADF would leave Namibia, and then his organization would be in charge. He preached this message constantly as a morale booster for his troops. This meant his strategy was like that of a chess player playing a series of tournaments, not just a game. He could sit back for ages and just watch. He didn't have to rush around the felt chasing ghosts like the South African mechanized units. He had history on his side, and anyone who fights a war and understands this is a very dangerous opponent because they usually do not deploy an emotional response to tactical defeats. They have a much bigger picture in mind. After Operation Protea in 1981, Swapo leader Sam Nyoma met Ashipala and they shifted their bases northwards because the SADF had made it too dangerous to remain close to the cutline. So who was Ruben Danger Ashipala? Well, one of his earlier successes had taken place in February 1978, when he and a group of Swapo had crossed the border on foot and hit a South African military base at Ulundu, 10 kilometers inside Southwest Africa. Three SADF were killed, six were wounded, and he dragged skitter or rifleman Johan van der Mescht back to Angola as a prisoner of war. Most radicalized soldiers just kill everyone, but Ashipala understood the value of propaganda and wanted Skitter van der Mesh very much alive so he could be paraded in front of cameras. That was much more demoralizing than a body in a bag. The families of prisoners of war suffer mental torture as they imagine the horrors their loved one is going through. A POW is a gift that keeps on giving. A body is a one-off present. Ashipala's advanced strategic thinking confounded some of the South African narrative that Swapo were just a bunch of savage murderers arbitrarily killing everything that moved. And by 1982, South African intelligence knew exactly who Danger Ashipala was, and they also knew how effective the volcano base was at churning out planned soldiers. In a few weeks, the SADF were going to get their hands on one of the maps which contained details of volcano staffing, its daily routine, its weapons, its access routes, but first a series of vicious firefights began to develop. The center of the volcano base featured a large parade ground surrounded by a simple pole fence. In one corner was a planned map laid out with rocks of Namibia, and on the east side there was a stage with a roof where officers would sit during parades. There was also an ammunition bunker that was two meters deep, 
covered with large wooden poles and earth. Inside were AK-47s, ammunition, hand grenades, landmines, rifle grenades, RPG-7s and Strela missiles. There were mortar bombs and plastic explosives. Nearby was a trench with a desk, and that's where Ashapala and others planned the mission. The next mission was going to shake up the Tsumeb area. As I mentioned, the nine units were going to take various routes down south and three would break through the SEDF and SWATF's defences. Importantly, SWAPO officers at Volcano had no radio, nor did they have telephones. This protected them from SADF intelligence intercepts. They received and sent messages the old-fashioned way, by road, with freight trucks carrying food, along with the latest orders or military updates. Danger Ashapala had a 4x4 land cruiser, but that was the only vehicle on the base, and he used it sparingly. He didn't want to attract attention. Volcano was also three kilometers away from the main road to Labongo behind thick bush, and no one was allowed to visit. This kept it safer. There was always shooting going on around Labongo, so villagers kept their distance. By August 1981, there were 400 soldiers training at Volcano. About 50% of these were new recruits. Plan had suffered large losses over the last two years of war, but dozens of new recruits arrived every few months as they responded to Swapo's propaganda inside of Humberland. Danger Shapala made all recruits learn English and Afrikaans. They needed to understand the enemy, he said. Each company was comprised of 10 platoons of 40, and each commander given a war name. This was usual for post-colonial wars. Names like Amin, Kilimanjaro, Castro, Kaunda. These commanders were trained in China, not in Russia. They adopted the Viet Cong style of operation, living off the land, using foot-based paths, not roads. Every company had a political commissar in the man of the Russians and the Chinese, ensuring that they towed the single-party line. Daily training included laying landmines, using plastic explosives for sabotage, setting up ambushes, tactical movement, how to confuse trackers, and basic first aid. These men were briefed during their training about what would happen once they infiltrated Ovumberland, and unlike the South Africans, there would be no extraction if they were wounded. They were handed medical kits with bomb bandages, syringes with penicillin and morphine, and told that if they were walking wounded, then walk they would. There wouldn't be any chopper Kazapaks, no medical facility. They were on their own. One day in March 1982, Danger Ashapala drew up the men for a parade and announced startling news. They were going to be part of a major offensive into southwest Africa. Nine platoons, totaling 200 men, were selected. Seven of these platoons, 150 strong, were heading to the farming areas of Tsumeb, Khutfontein, Atavi, Combat, Ucho, and Gamajap, and they were called the Eastern Group. The rest were to remain north of the cutline. The 150 would be led into the Triangle of Death by commanders called Nangobe, Castro, Kayofa, Kalulu and Shikongo. The timelines were drawn up and the orders were simple. Fight for a month or until they ran out of ammunition, then go underground afterwards or, if possible, head back north. But that was only to be attempted if there was a clear route or they'd been spotted early. This was going to be a classic guerrilla campaign. Sam Nuyoma visited the base again just before Operation Typhoon began and stood alongside Danger Ashapala on the parade ground stage under the roof. Alongside them was Plan Senior Staff Officer Martin Shali. 1982 is the year of Swapo, Nuyoma said in his fiery way. You're going to fight until the area you're in is free. Kill the Boers. On the 1st of April 1982, a convoy of Russian Ural trucks rolled into the base and the men of Eastern Group were loaded up. First, they headed northeast, not south, past the outspread arms of the Lobango crest on the hill, 
towards Techumuteti. When the trucks reached Techumuteti, the infiltration teams clambered off. The easy part of their trek south was complete, and they were given a day to take a breath and receive rations. Then the platoons began the long walk southwards. The cut line was still 370 kilometers away. They could not approach any closer by vehicle because the SADF was too active in southern Angola. 3-2 Battalion and 61 Mech had been sweeping that part of the country clean and Swabo also had to deal with UNITA. It took these 150 men almost a week to walk the 370 kilometers, carrying landmines, hundreds of rounds of 5.56 ammo, their AK-47s, RPG-7s, hand grenades and the Strela anti-aircraft missiles. That by itself is some hike by any soldier's standards, and they did it at speed. The groups reached the border on the night of 8th of April, then broke up into their platoons before crossing the cutline. Each platoon had its own target. Remarkably, they still had 240 kilometers of marching to go, not to mention they were heading into three heavily patrolled regions which the SADF called Charlie, Alpha and Bravo. Two of these platoons were earmarked for something special. Those under the command of Kayofa and Kululu carried extra RPG-7s, SKS rifle grenades and Strela anti-aircraft missiles. While the other platoons were ordered to avoid any direct confrontation with the SADF and SWATF, Kayofa and Kululu's men were told to attack the security forces head-on. This was going to be a mission they'd carry out with deadly efficiency, and it was going to send shockwaves through the Triangle of Death. They were going to dangle themselves as bait, and their trap was going to work. By now, 61 Mechanized Battalion was well ensconced in the area around Sumib, and a special relationship had developed with the community, particularly the farmers. Hundreds of specially trained troops and rifle infantry were based less than 100 kilometers from Tsumib alongside the main tar road. 61 mech officers and their families lived in the tree-lined streets of Tsumib. They were welcomed and lifelong friendships had developed between particularly the townsfolk and the SADF. The town's economy had been boosted by 61 mech. Food, clothing and schooling was all required to keep the officers' families going. The oldest house in Tsumib was now 61 mech's HQ, and many Tsumeb women were hired to carry out troop payments and other admin duties. However, most of the mechanized unit's junior officers, NCOs and troops, remained in the bush, based in Umutia, and were hardly ever seen in the town. It was out of bounds, except in special circumstances. The citizen force and national servicemen were trucked into town now and again to purchase toiletries and writing materials, but the hotel bar, liquor off-sales and every other part of the town, except for the main street, were banned. These organized eight stuppies, as they were called, saw troops heading into the retail stores. Some stopped at the Vayant Brothers coffee shop halfway between the mineshaft and the Dutch colonial church for hamburgers and chips. So over time a sense of unity had built up between the Southwesters and the South Africans. Both spoke Afrikaans, went to the same churches, came from the same people who trekked to the Transvaal and Free State, then became Dorstrekkers. 61 mechanized commander Roland de Vries was going to face a severe test shortly. He had studied the revolutionary principles of warfare and was expert at thinking like a revolutionary. At Omatia, he'd become famous for listening to what lower-ranking officers thought about tactics. He'd also shone during his training, particularly when it came to acting as a guerrilla leader during war games. He was acutely aware by April 1982 that Swapo was on its way. He had just no idea that Typhoon was blowing south. He's told the story many times, and he was worried right then, and he was concerned about three things in particular. First, sitting below the cut line waiting for an attack means, yes, you don't have the initiative. 
Secondly, he wanted to escalate his patrols because it was rainy season, his enemy was on the move, but he had to wait for orders. Thirdly, he fell under the command of Sector 30, and the HQ was in Ochiporongo, 200 kilometers south of Omotia, where 61 was based. Sector 30 commanders were far away from the action, and some at 61 Mech believed their commanders had adopted an out-of-sight, out-of-mind kind of logic. Local farm-based commanders had also begun to sound the alarm at this point. You see, in 1981, the year before, counterinsurgency ops had been under de Vries's command, but then they were shifted to SWATIF, and he chafed under the new rule. The local farms had small units of SADF and SWATIF troops scattered about, but these men had no vehicles except for a handful of buffles and Land Rovers. They were useful as local security guards, if you like, but not tactically. Then came the news on April 10th from Nkongo. The tracks of 150 infiltrators had been found in the vicinity of the cutline, north of Bravo section, and they appeared to be on their way to Tsumet. The SADF launched a follow-up operation, but lost the spur. The Fris asked Ochiboronga 30HQ if he could launch something called Operation Awake, the counterinsurgency plan he'd deployed the previous year. 30 hesitated. Then the next day, on April 11th, a buffle set off a landmine at the Charlie Sector border about 30 kilometers north of Tsintsabas, closer to Bravo. De Vries and his planners knew then that the infiltrators were heading their way, but where were they? Was it a repeat of the previous year, or had Swapo learned its lesson about how it ran ambushes and attacks and changed tactics, wondered De Vries. Of course, it appeared that everyone in the SADF at that point was oblivious to just how much Swapo had actually altered its tactics. I mentioned Napoleon's famous dictum at the start of this episode for a reason. You must not fight too often with one enemy or you will teach him all your art of war. And Danger Ashipala was a quick learner. He knew what the SADF would do in a firefight, how they'd respond to his spur. He was banking on more of the same and he wasn't going to be disappointed. Ashipala had planned a trap and the security forces were going to drive straight into it. Among his victims would be members of the family of Tanti Pompi. Remember, she was at the heart of radio comms in the Triangle of Death. Her husband, Daiki, and her son, Hendrik, were going to pay the ultimate price as they tracked Swapo's spoor across a dry salt pan called Efensa China. What happened next is for next episode. Please rate the podcast on iTunes. It helps escalate the visibility of the story. If you have any comments, head over to my website, abwarpodcast.com. There's a link. You can send an email there. Or you can direct message me on Twitter, at Des Latham. Until next, tot ziens.